comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor. Before we get into this week's episode, I have some really great news that I want to talk to you about. Um, it's on the Action Lab Entertainment front. It has to do with Princeless, the book that I've talked about and tattled about on many episodes here on the PKD Black Box. The nominees for the 2012 Glyph Awards, which honors the best in comics portrayal of African Americans, were announced last week, with Princeless receiving five out of, out of a possible seven nominations. And the 2012 Glyph Awards will take place this May 18th during the East Coast Black Age of Comics Convention located in Philadelphia. Now, for us, this is a really big deal, a very big deal. And Princess was nominated for the following awards, Story of the Year, Best Writer, Best Artist, Best Female Character, and Best Cover. And we are going toe-to-toe with Marvel's new Ultimate Spider-Man book by Bendis and uh, Pacelli. And for the team of Jeremy Whitley, Jeremy Whitley Goodwin, uh, Dave, you know, handling it on Dave DeWatch handling it on letters and colors, and I mean, and also Goodwin on colors as well. Everybody doing the work that they had to do to make this book a possibility. Um, I'm thankful. Everybody at Action Lab is thankful, and we're also thankful to be listed in such company of talented creators, artists, and major publishers for the 2012 uh, Glyph Awards. It's just incredible, and we applaud all the hard work that Jeremy and the entire crew and everyone involved with Princeless have done, and I want to take a moment out to thank the 2012 Glyph Awards panel for selecting Princeless as a nominee in five categories. This is a really big deal. You know, the year and a half, almost two years that I've been with Action Lab, for something like this to happen at this period of time is just amazing. And so to everyone that supports Princeless, to everyone that supports Action Lab, I once again say thank you. And um, we're really excited about this. And hopefully, you know, we come away with an award or two. And even if we don't, the fact that we got five nominations our first time out is just utterly amazing and humbling and astounding. So I thank everyone. Now, before this episode starts, uh, we are brought to you today by the Lexington Comic Con, which takes place this weekend. It takes place Saturday, March 24th, 2012. I will be there representing Action Lab along with super incredible artist Martheus Wade, who you've heard on this podcast. He will be there with copies of Jetta Tales of the Toshigawa, which is now also an Action Lab digital exclusive. And I will be there with plenty of Action Lab comics, Action Lab swag such as t-shirts, and, I mean, copies of Princeless, XO on the Rock Solid Steel Bots, Monsters Are Just Like Us, Back in the Day, Fracture, you name it, anything that we've published, I should have with me at this show. Martheus will be doing sketches, 
and the whole nine. There are going to be lots of other comic personalities there, artists, creators, vendors, exhibitors. Um, my homies Boku Pop will be down the street at the show. Not down the street, but they'll be in the same convention as us, but like down the way uh, doing their thing as well. Mike Grell will be there. Like I said, all types of people will be there. If you're And if you're an old school Power Rangers fan like myself, you get the chance to meet Jason David Frank. The original green, you know, the original Green Ranger, Tommy. Now you know, trust me, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, but there will be a lot of creators, a lot of artists, a lot of vendors, a lot of exhibitors, a lot of everything. And it's the first big show in Lexington, Kentucky, in a very long time. If you go to LexingtonComicCon.com, you can find out more about it. If you're near the area, stop on by, swing on by the table. Get some great comics, get you a cool Action Lab t-shirt, you know, or get you a cool sketch from Martheus Wade. We got it all for you. So come on down to the show. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Double Jumpers Number 1 from Action Lab Entertainment, uh, based off of off an idea by um, me and Dave DeWanch, written by Dave DeWanch with brilliant and fantastic artwork by Bill Blankenship. If you want to take a look at Double Jumpers number one, there is an exclusive 14-page uncensored preview at bleedingcool.com. The censored six to seven-page preview is on actionlabcomics.com. And the order code for the book is MAR120710. Or you can pre-order the book online at dcbservice.com, tfall.com, or go to your local comic shop and give them the code MAR120710. I can't stress enough as a publisher of comics that we depend on pre-orders. Pre-orders make our business. I know for some people that don't understand the comics game, it kind of seems backwards. You think, you know, we just give everybody books and then people buy them, but it's the complete opposite. Stores pre-order and that's how they gauge their market. So you got to go in to your to your local comic shop this week and say, I want Double Jumpers number one. It is for mature readers. Same for the kids. Yes, we have princesses for the kids. Other books we have for the are for the kids. This is not for the kids. So please understand that. So if you, like I said, if you go to Bleeding Cool, you'll get the uncensored preview. You go to our website, you'll get the censored preview. Please check it out. It is one of the most gorgeous looking books you will ever see, and it's funny. And it's you know it's not politically correct by any any way, shape, or means. The elevator pitch, like I've explained on a lot of shows and podcasts that I've been on, it's a touch of the Hangover, the E3 Gaming Expo, and Freaky Friday. So check it out and take a look at it. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to go into our feature presentation. The guest on this episode is a gentleman by the name of Taylor Pithers. We've had some hip-hop conversations, Taylor and I, or Taylor and me, via Twitter, along with Julian Lytle and, and, and Niles Gray, a.k.a. One, AKA Tribe One, over Twitter over like the last weeks and weeks and weeks. And back in February, originally, the way it was supposed to go down, myself along with Julian, Tribe One, and and Taylor, we were all supposed to record together and do the hip hop summit, which was episode 75. But unfortunately, because of like timing and scheduling, we couldn't all get together. So myself, along with with Julian and, and Tribe One, we recorded an episode together. And I also recorded an episode with Taylor Pithers from the UK. And we we're talking about hip hop again, the hip hop summit part two, as it were. We continue. We talk about hip hop from a cultural perspective from like the US and the UK. We talk about Def Jam. We talk about certain artists that we weren't able to talk about in full extent and to a fuller extent in the previous episode. Episode. The response to the hip hop summit episode has been really great. 
and I got a feeling that this one you're going to you're going to enjoy it too, especially if you love music and hip hop. And there is some comics talk in the beginning, so don't you fear. And we're going to do more of these this year as well. So don't worry, we still going to mix it up like we always do, but there will be more of these later on this year, including one with myself, Julian Lytle, Jason Wood, Tribe One, and hopefully Taylor Pithers all together under one under one dome talking about more hip hop because there's so many places we can take it and we still haven't talked about so many other things because I'm sure you're going to listen to this episode and say how come nobody's talked about the Beastie Boys yet how comes no how come nobody's talked about Goody Mob yet how come nobody's done a long introspective on De La Soul it's coming all that's coming but we got a lot more we got so much more to talk about hip hop is like comics it's infinite and there's so many things you could talk about on it but this conversation begins with Taylor talking about the London Super Comic Convention and his experience there. And from then, we start talking about hip hop. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Peace. Oh, I went to a Comic Con yesterday, London Comic Con. Oh, you did? How was it? Oh man, it was amazing. Um, I hooked up with Matt Burden and Simon Price and all those guys and just had a great time all round. Uh, some great creators there, really good creators. Um, met uh, Who did I meet? I met George Perez, who was fantastic. Um, I met Jamal Igle, who was one of the nicest guys I think I've ever met in the comics industry. Yes. Really nice guy. I ended up speaking to him for about half an hour about fish and chips and uh, <laughs> going to the pub. He, he was fully immersing himself in the London experience. Uh-huh. Um, who, who else? Fred Van Lente. Like quite, it was really good turnout actually. Really good. Loads of cool guys and just a nice day all round. Really cool, man. Did you get any sketches or anything? I um, I got a, a Manuela Lupacino commission. She's the um, she does X Factor at the moment, but um, her style's very much like Terry Dodson. Oh, okay. Uh, and I got loads of cheap books. I got um, Todd McFarlane's entire run on Amazing Spider-Man, um, the Omnibus. I suppose the equivalent of about thirty dollars. Uh, they had like a sort of Nick and Dent sale at one of the vendors, but he's like the tiniest dent in the corner of the book. Like you wouldn't notice it otherwise. So that's really cool. And as I said, like the best thing was meeting up with the creators and and the boys. You know, I, Matt lives quite a way away from me, so we don't really get to see each other often unless it's at a con or one of his shows or something like that mm-hmm. but oh man it was good it, I'm tired though today really tired today <laughs> we were walking around on your feet all day we don't really have many cons in the UK so this is quite a new thing to us guys whereas before we had more um, manga cons and stuff like that and the comics bit was like shunted into the corner now we're I suppose through the films and you know like the whole graphic novel industry while the comics industry, I guess, is kind of slipping, the the graphic novel industry is booming in this country, particularly. So, you know, quite a few guys were getting like really big cues as well. It was it was fantastic. Oh, it was exciting, man! Like, I don't know if you, like you can hear the smile on my face just talking about oh, no, it. I, I can, can definitely. I mean, I can see it without seeing it. <laughs> yeah, it was such a cool experience, man. Uh, Bill Sinkevich was there. Mike Norton was there. Some real cool guys were there, and like obviously the cues for the big guys were like round the block. Your Brian Bolands and your Bill Sinkeviches and stuff. But yeah, we got to talk to Mike Norton for like twenty minutes or so. He's a nice chap, you know. It was really cool actually 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Jamal Igo, Mike Norton, those are like the the real, real good guys of the comic book business. You won't find better people on this planet when it comes to just as far as like work ethic and just being great people. You, you won't, you won't, you you won't find two better two better men. You know what I mean? I, I, honestly, as far as like you know, as far as the dudes go, you won't find two better guys. They were just so welcoming, you know. It, it was it was quite an interesting thing to see how, because as I said, like the expo- the exposure that I have is minimal to conventions, but it was interesting to see how some of the creators were kind of less inviting, and some of the creators were really welcoming to you and really wanted to talk to you and get to know the fans and stuff. Yeah. And you're right; those guys were definitely in that camp. I, I think some of that has to do with the fact that we live like our generation. You know, some of us have um, augmented into the social media uh, aspect yes. of life. And because of that, some of us, you know, some of us are more accepting to talk to others. Plus, it also breaks the stereotype of comic book creators always with their heads down at a show and not, and, you know, not not saying that they're not paying attention to what's going on because for artists, they're sketching, they're doing yeah, commissions totally. and stuff like that. But they're also there. But, you know, the, the really great ones will sit and talk with you. But at the same time, they have to guard themselves because every now and then you get that person that's a little out there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, very much so. You know, so but they are like the really, really good guys of um of comics today and, and like and with some of the creators from like from yesteryear some of them are this you know are like that too they'll sit and have a conversation with you and they'll talk to you about art or talk to you about the stuff they've written or but some are very standoffish and and, and some of them i understand why some of them i don't you know what i mean some, yeah. of, some of them may have had bad experiences some of them are just like you know what i'm just really here to work so you know let me just get this in and then i'll go back to the hotel and chill out so it it, it just it all depends on the individual Oh, entirely. Like uh, as you said, um, we um, got to meet Bob Layton as well, and he was a really welcoming guy. Actually, he was, and it was quite a culture shock for like us, uh, us Brits. He was an old school, like he had a bit of a like a New Yorky sort of accent. He's mm-hmm. quite boisterous, but a real nice guy as well. From from just talking to him, and he didn't have a cue at all. That was shocking. He had he was doing Iron Man sketches for like twenty pounds. So <laughs> you know, but then you got like the Perezes and the Sinkeviches that were just people were going crazy for and stan lee was there as well yeah. which was a big thing for for us guys you know oh yeah definitely and see you also have to take in consideration guys like sinkevich and perez they don't go to a lot of shows mm, well entirely definitely they don't go to a lot of, they don't go to a lot of shows especially sinkevich i mean it's pretty from 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 my knowledge it's pretty rare when sinkevich comes out for a show so i expect like lines going out the door for sinkevich and, <laughs> yeah, totally. and and it's the same with george perez like when he came to heroes con a few years back and it was like the first heroes con i ever attended and i and, and i had a table i was sharing a table with some guys i saw him and like his line was just whipped up and down up and down up and down i mean mm-hmm. it, it was insane but i mean but then it's but it's george perez legend you know yeah. he's a legend in the industry so mm-hmm. he deserves it yeah i actually um had a quick look at um sinkevich had a few pages on sale and when i first got there i i had some kind of dream that i might be able to afford one of them <laughs> and i quickly had a look through and then maybe thought um, i don't know if i could justify buying any of those but they were they were beautiful you know but oh, yeah. uh, it was four figures some of them were so 
It's very expensive, man. Very expensive. Yeah, you're going to pay for a Sienkiewicz page, man. Trust me. I understand why. Like I said, the man's a legend. So, you you know, he he will drop those. He will put that price in your face. Exactly. <laughs> and, but there was people willing to pay for it. That yes. was the thing. There was people there with, like, buying Sienkiewicz pages, um, new mutant pages that he had. Mm-hmm. And they were just gorgeous. And people were buying them. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they're making this money, especially in this day and age. <laughs> oh, I know. To, like, to afford to drop money on Sienkiewicz pages. But, you know, good for them. No, no, I understand. Listen, if you go to Heroes Con one day, it's in North Carolina. If if you ever go, yeah. it's more about the artists and the creators than like than the publishers. Oh wow! People, because because it's a really big con. Yeah, you can like buy cheap books and all types of stuff, but people go there to pick up commission sketches and stuff like that. And the amounts of money that are being dropped. I mean, you could get the, the funny thing. The funny thing about that show is you could get a great sketch or commission from somebody that you never heard of for like fifteen bucks. And then go get a commissioner sketch from somebody that's so well known that I mean, just say their name and every and everybody at that show knows who they are. Yeah. For like four hundred, five hundred dollars. I mean, that's oh. the, it, that that's the range. The range could go from uber cheap to uber expensive on, on, on a whim. But but if you're there, you know what you're there for. It's the type of show where if I if and when I ever go back, um, I have to have a lot of money with me. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to get angry Because I can't get anything <laughs> I know exactly what you mean man I know exactly what you mean <laughs> <laughs> But no I'm, I'm really glad that um, You guys you know, had a great time At the London uh, Super, uh, Super Comic Con I'm sorry, uh, you can just interrupt you. The yeah. best is uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Oh yeah, that's, was, that's, that's what I was like. Oh yeah, I was going to I was going to ask you. I, I was going to ask you as far as like uh, hip hop and like as far as um, group that um, you feel has had the most influence on hip hop. You say it's Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Uh, they're game. Well, all of the guys that you're that you're going to talk about were definitely game changers, but I think they really changed it and laid laid down the groundwork that. It's hard to articulate. They laid down the groundwork that everyone else has been biting and eating off since, you know. Like, before that, it was... Hip-hop was really kind of disco. And then they took it and really turned it into something that was completely different. And, you know, ever since then, the rest is history, you know. I'm sure we'll talk about it, especially when we talk about Def Jam. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree with you. I think the thing is, with them, a lot of... I think a lot of today's, like, youth i'm just talking about the youth i'm not talking about like everybody listens to hip-hop as a whole i'm just talking about like right now i mean like for people that have been born within like the last 15 or 16 years may or may not probably don't have a clue as to the roots of hip-hop some do because some you know some do because they either have family or or friends that say hey hey you need to check out a b c or d you know what i mean but Mm. But I think that's especially with radio. It's less than it's it's less for sure, um, because like I know as far as like local radio stations around here, old stuff doesn't get played. Really, 
old stuff doesn't get played. And we have like, because like I, I really gave up on listening to radio a while ago, um, especially after taking some communications classes and learning how um, corporate radio just absorbed all the, pretty much absorbed all the, all the radio stations. Um, Cause now pretty much all radio stations are owned by either clear channel uh, I think Blue Chip Blue Chip Broadcasting is still around. Sinclair Communications, and and like for like say for instance Black or quote unquote Urban, um, there's Radio One. Okay. Because if Radio One still wasn't around, there probably would be. If Radio One wasn't around, there probably would be no Black radio stations in America. And did I own all the the ones that I I in the UK would have heard of like the Power One Hundred Sixes and the Hot Ninety Sevens and those sort of radio stations? Now that's a good question because the thing is is that the Hot brand I don't know who owns that. I've been trying actually I've been trying to find that out for a while. I can't remember because we have a hot channel in our state, but it has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with like Hot 97 in New York. Because like from a from a hip hop term, you know, from hip hop term, uh, terminology, as like a kid or as like I shouldn't even say a kid, as like when I was a teenager, if I heard a rapper on the radio say, you know, in their rhyme that they got played on Hot 97, I knew that was important, and this was yeah, this, totally. and this was before the internet blew up, right? You know, this is way before the internet blew up when we were still using like America Online and floppy disks. And oh, I need to talk to you about that later on. I, 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 there's a lot of things I think affect hip hop of the and the way that the internet has changed the entire music industry. But go on, sorry, no, no, continue, no. please. But like from just the social aspect. I knew that if a rapper got played on Hot 97 or brought that up in a rhyme, that was important. So in my eyes, I thought, okay, if you if you hit on Hot 97, then you've made it because that's in New York. And and for, and for like a lot of people, you know, we all feel that hip hop started in the East. And yep. and then it then it just spread out across the map and across the globe, you know. And that's and that's no offense to like folks in the West. It's no offense to folks in the South. I'm not trying to start no war. I'm just trying to explain to folks that's where it started, and then it grew outwards and grown into like something massive. Yeah, as far as like radio goes, there's no more local radio. I mean, there's local radio stations, but there's no there's no soul to them. What sort of stuff are they playing? Well, it's like this: like the latest uh, hip hop R and B station we have, it's called Wild, I think, and Wild, which actually has like commercial voiceovers from MC Light because she does like a lot wow. of she she does a lot of voiceover work now which is kind of cool but they'll play current stuff and every now and then like in every fifth or sixth song they'll say we're taking it back to the old school and for the old school it's the mid to late 90s do you know what though that is some people's old school Sean I know (laughs) it is that's just us getting a bit older man I don't mean to say it but that is some people's old school unfortunately it it, it is true and 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 I have to recognize that because we are like you said we are getting older and I have to respect that but at the same time there's no more history there's no there's no more history for radio you'll never get an era of well you may and then like and with the internet it's a little bit different, but as far as just like now, I can just call it corporate radio. You'll never get the era of social change in radio ever again. You'll never get that DJ that is adamant about social issues. You'll never, 
you, you'll never have that again. You'll seldom, if ever, have a local radio station play local acts anymore. That's dead. Really? It's dead. In the United States, it's dead. It, that doesn't make sense to me, though. Surely that's where the buzz comes from, is your local acts. N- no. got to start at the bottom. Doesn't happen anymore, dude. Doesn't oh, happen man. anymore. That got killed years ago. Um, Chuck D talks about it a lot. Um, you know, cause like he, you know, he try, he keeps up, he keeps up with like all this stuff and, you know, he's just admin. He said, you can't grow music if you don't play local acts anymore. Oh, totally. You know, growing up, growing up, you know, growing up in Ohio, our radio stations, I remember from like the, from like the early, from the mid eighties to like the late nineties would play local acts. And some of those acts eventually got signed to major labels. And what happened after that? Who knows? But some of them did go a little bit farther, but we heard local acts. Not anymore. That's not the case. That's done. It's dead. It's done. See, that's, that's a shame because for me as well, that, do you think that connects to the leading into the homogenization of the sound of hip-hop nowadays? It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have a specific sound. Like I remember come, living in the UK, I kind of look at the American rap scene, I suppose, a lot different from a lot of American guys because, you know, we're obviously we, we, we live thousands of miles away. America's just one giant landmass to me. <laughs> but you could still tell a New Orleans act from a New York act, mm-hmm. from a West Coast act, mm-hmm. from a Texas act, from, you know, you can you could tell the difference in sound. But I find nowadays all acts from all different areas all have this weird sort of hybrid dirty south boom bap sound that doesn't really sound like any region at all and all regions put together at once yeah. and it kind of for me stifles the scene a little bit because you know it limits the sort of sounds that you could find i know growing up we'd have to go to the and this is what i mean before pre-internet you'd, you'd buy your copy of the source maybe <laughs> listen to your specialist radio station that was on at a wednesday night at 11 p.m or something yes. to find these new acts and then you'd have to find go to the local record store and try and dig out these new acts and from these new regions like I remember when I first heard Slum Village from Detroit. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think an act like that would really gain national airplay at all nowadays because they 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 were doing something entirely different from what all the other uh, what everyone else was doing yeah. and I don't think that would suit today's marketplace, you know. Yeah, I I agree. As a matter of fact, I'm still shocked that that Tainted got airplay. Well, exactly. Exactly, which is uh, is a killer tune. I was listening to Slum Village this morning. It's a, it was a sunny day in London today, so I went to the shops and get some breakfast for me and my girlfriend. Listening to a bit of Slum Village, it couldn't have got any better. Yeah, and and not only that, but during that period of time, there was also Dilated Peoples. Oh, yep, entirely. And Dilated Peoples, I remember every radio station talking about them. But never playing them. But when the but when their label gave them, told you know, gave them a quote unquote mainstream song and put Kanye on it before Kanye was Kanye, Kanye. Yeah. And and it, and it got a video, and that video got airplay. And I remember radio stations playing that song. They played it for like two weeks, and then it just quit. <laughs> and that was the only time I ever heard Dilated Peoples on on the radio and it wasn't like um it wasn't a a dj a dj mix show because that's something else that's kind of gone away i don't know how it is over in the uk i know from where i'm at now 
they used to be the weekends, Friday nights, you know, like the weekends were for the actual live DJs to come in and mix. Yep. That's that's almost dead where I'm where I'm at. I don't know where it is and how it is in the rest of the world, but like as far as like where I'm at, like the, the tri-state area, um, Ohio, um, Kentucky, Indiana, that stuff's pretty much dead too. A, a similar state of affairs here now as well. We um we used to have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights, eleven till one, like quite quite a graveyard slot, you know. But they'd have hip hop. One <clears throat> sorry, one night would be a hip hop night. The next night would be an R and B night because, as well, in the UK at the time, this was pre Eminem, pre Jay Z, pre. The real, like the real big commercial acts coming through, hip hop and urban music in in its entirety was still kind of a little bit more esoteric than what everyone else was li- listening to in this country. Mm-hmm. So we'd get the graveyard slots, and then you know I, I remember growing up and uh, the, the, listening to it on tape. The following day, I used to record it uh, half asleep, recording my radio shows, and then listen to it the following day. And that's where you know you'd get the the real groundbreaking artists. I think to be honest, in the late nineties, in the on daytime radio, we were only getting the real big big acts, maybe the odd two-pack tune mm-hmm. um coolio gangsters paradise obviously got a lot of airplay in the uk for about <laughs> 20 weeks it was number one or something like that said as soon as eminem and jay-z those were the two big guys in the uk that kind of tore the doors open and made it mainstream to yeah. listen to that sort of stuff and that's when they started getting daytime airplay but i think that that then led to a kind of weird hybrid of pop and hip-hop that mm-hmm. kind of has invaded the the daytime radio playlist that is neither pop nor hip-hop right it's, it's a very strange kind of music well hip-hop has hit every form of music now oh, um, totally. it, it's it's entered into every form of music now whether people whether people want to believe it or not or accept that or not because hip-hop is something that is you just it's mainstream and it's been mainstream for a while now but for the longest time folks wanted to deny it it eventually people just said listen it's here to stay because yes. I, I mean it, it took it took 25 years for mainstream like as far as in america mainstream america and western culture to finally accept hip-hop as a form of music and they're still playing it don't accept it as a form of music but for 25 years people thought that it was going that it was a fad 20 once again repeating that sentence 25 years I know. <laughs> they thought it was a fad 25 years fads are not 25 years long okay I know. that's a that's a long fad <laughs> yeah but now but you know but ever since then you know it's accepted but you're right um you're right there is more of a homogenized sound now and it's it's kind of sad i mean you have to go look for acts now you have to go find um you know hip-hop hip-hop yes. sounds now you have to go look it's not like a radio station is going to play a talib kwali album it's not going to happen and and the only time it was supposed to happen was on the well, well the only time it well i take that back played they played the one talib, talib kwali song just to get by and then the kanye produced one though yes wasn't it? yes it was yes and then he signed that deal with warner brothers and he had that album called eardrum which warner brothers botched Oh, they yes. they botched that so bad. That album is great. That is a great oh, it's album. A, it's a fantastic album. And they botched that as far as like marketing, trying to promote itself. They botched that to a T. Hey!
I actually meant to ask you who who was the the artist in America? Do you think nationally that really made hip hop become fully mainstream and become the sort of multi platinum sort of beast that it is nowadays? Ooh, well, I don't know. Actually, I do know because the thing is, is okay. Let me let me let me catch myself because like I'm know I'm about to make people mad. To me. It was it was it was the bad boy era that really brought up that whole thing about artists going platinum and, you know, platinum this getting constant hits on radio and mainstream pop radio. I mean, come on, man. Like, I mean, this was after Notorious B.I.G. died. But to think about a song like More Money, More Problems hitting pop radio. Yeah, I know it's got a catchy Diana Ross sample, but. That was on pop radio in the '90s. That to me, that was unheard of because the thing Gats is, in holsters on main, on the mainstream radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mainstream radio, and like they're playing it without any problems. You, you know, it, yeah. it, without any problems. And then like, three, I don't think in the UK they could even hear what he said, so they didn't even like like dub that bit out. Right. So he'd be talking about Gats in holsters on two o'clock in the afternoon on family radio. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, because like the whole thing is, is that, yeah, Run DMC, you know, they definitely broke ground as far as to, you know, putting hip hop on the map. And yep. they were the first artists to ever perform on an award show. And I think it was the Grammys. And I think they got like 15 seconds. Yep. And which which as a kid, I was excited they got to perform. And I was like, they only got to perform for 15 seconds. I, I bet you were bummed out after that. You waited hours and hours to see their performance. Oh, I was, and it was 15 seconds long. I was pissed off. I was so mad because the thing is, I remember I remember the actual s- sketch setup for that. Sherman, Hem- uh, Sherman Hemsley from the Jeffersons came out as Santa Claus. And he, had this, and he had these kids and he had a grab bag of music. And okay. and like he would pull something out of his grab bag, and then like this artist would get to perform. Some got to perform for like a minute. Some got to perform for two. And he pulled out the Run DMC, and like Run DMC had this like cool like this little cool stage with the big Run DMC logo behind them. They got to rap for fifteen seconds, and they went away. And I was hurt. But that's but that's how they felt about hip hop music, and that's how they kind of felt about black culture at the time. You know, it's like if you wasn't Michael Jackson, or Lionel Richie, or Rick James, they wasn't fucking with you. Yeah, I know what you mean. They wasn't fucking with you, but um, so I and I don't when I when I was talking about the whole you know Bad Boy era, I, that wasn't a diss towards Run DMC because Run DMC was on the map. They got to the, you know they did a song with Aerosmith. But the thing is, is that as far as hip hop being constantly played on pop stations, Run DMC wasn't played on wasn't played on pop stations. It, no. You know, I remember Bad Boy Records getting played on pop stations. And, oh, entirely. You know, and uh, I'd add Death Row to that as well. Yeah. Yes. 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 Very true. Very true. Yes. Yeah. I, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, but there were people. There were artists like there were artists that basically allowed that to. Ha- no, I shouldn't say allowed that to happen. That paved the way for people to finally recognize and say, "Hey, maybe we should start playing this stuff on the radio." And the sad thing is, is that the people that are pa- paved the way, they never really got that airplay on mainstream radio. That's well, that's what irked me. I mean, because I'll say it once, I'll say it again. Big Daddy Kane is fucking awesome. Oh, entirely, and and no MC Shan, you'd have no Nas. You could go; the list mm-hmm. could go on forever with that sort of thing. You know, exactly. Definitely, because I, I remember most mainstream radio really starting to embrace hip hop or at least play it around the time Notorious B.I.G. died. You heard "More Money, More Problems." I heard "Hypnotize" on pop radio. Hypnotize. 
Your daughter's tied up in the Brooklyn basement. I heard that on pop radio. You, you know what I mean? I, you know, I would I, in my lifetime I thought I would never hear that on pop radio. You know, I and heard Tupac records. And I mean, I remember a day I'm coming home from work and like I hit this one pop station that always would play the most like milk toast music ever. And they play Snoop's Upside Your Head. <laughs> okay, and that and that was off the weak Snoop Dogg album. Okay, that was like a, was the the Dog Father or something. Like that, that was the second one. That didn't he have like he was going to court for some sort of oddness at the time, wasn't he? I think so. And um and that was and that was the first Death Row record without Dre producing it. Yes, and it had Charlie Wilson on the hook. And I remember that playing on the pop radio station. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? You, you know. And then three years later, they played nothing but a G thing. Three years later. Wow. Once again, three years later. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but that's the thing, isn't it? They, they had to explode so that people would go back to their previous material and appreciate that, you know? Yeah. Like, like you've been saying about Biggie. Biggie was a fairly successful MC, but like, like it, it, unfortunately... His death and the subsequent release of Life After Death made him... I, th- I think that album went diamond, you know? Yeah, like, not, not many albums can say that. And, like, you know, then people went back to Ready to Die to give that a try, you know? Which was... It's, it's, it's such a sad thing that someone's death had to happen for doors to open mm-hmm. in an industry. And the same goes for Tupac. What, whatever people's opinions are of Biggie or Tupac, you know... Their, their contribution and unfortunately their untimely demise did so much for the rap industry. Yeah. It brought mainstream attention, not just to the music, but the culture and the lifestyle as well. Yeah. Albeit wasn't the the most positive aspects of the culture and the lifestyle. Yeah. And and that's something I think that's something that bothered me is that when hip hop when people really started to notice hip hop, it was during the blunts, booze and broads era. Yeah, which is sad, you know. Yeah, and because my whole problem is, is that media, the like news media itself, would never embrace hip hop, and but they embraced the shit out of this bullshit East Coast West Coast beef. That is what irritated the piss out of me. Oh, entirely. They they didn't have any time for it when Tribe Called Quest were dropping Midnight Marauders mm-hmm. and, you know, De La Soul were dropping Three Feet High and Rising yes. because they were preaching a positive message. But as soon as there's some glamorization to it, because, you know, uh, it's, it's just a byproduct of living in the world we do. I think that violence and glamour, unfortunately, go hand in hand. You just have to look at any films or televisual entertainment and you see what viewing figures, things like The Wire and Deadwood and shows like that get. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate, but it's true, and it brought it it brought the masses to it. And you know, I don't know. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because you know, it brought it out to a mainstream, but the way it brought it out wasn't necessarily the the most positive way for it to happen. Yes, it's, it's a, you're getting me choked up here. It's such a sad, sad <laughs> thing to talk about. You know, it, it always has, and it, and it and it always will bother me that when mainstream America wanted to talk about hip hop. They wanted to talk about the beef, the East Coast, West Coast beef, which, and then, then that to this, I mean, it, it just, it won't leave me. I mean, I, I remember, I remember reading, and not reading, but I remember watching the news and them playing this stuff and some of the people they were talking to, and I just would just get so irritated. And, and you know, and I don't remember the, you know, like a lot of news coverage when it came to Public Enemy 
because Public Enemy was exactly. a group. Public Enemy was a group that was talking about social issues, and not only were they talking about social issues, they had like music where they were talking about social issues where the beats were so banging they would be playing in a club. Okay, <laughs> I know what you mean. You would be you would be dancing to social issues in the club, and then you're like, you know, you get work up a sweat, like, man, I feel good. I need to go change the world right now, and then go exactly. leave the club. But but I mean that's because like Chuck D's lyrics would hit you, and then Flavor Flav was like the Joker behind him, and the, just like the Shock G beats would just be hard. And oh, the Bomb Squad, uh, some of the greatest producers ever. Oh, not Shock G. I'm sorry, but uh, Hank Shockley. Oh, wait, Shock, yeah, that's it. Hank Shockley. Sorry. And, and G Wiz. That's who it was. Hank Shockley and G Wiz. Yeah. Because those guys done um uh, for me Ice Cube's greatest album as well, um, America's Most Wanted. Yeah. Well. Which is- See, you, you, you treading that that's treading because well, go on. <laughs> no, 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 because no, I understand. No, that's a great album. Oh, and, okay. And before, and because I know we've said like 15 times, we're going to get to this Jeff Jam talk, but no, nah, man, it's um, cool. but before we get to that, what is your favorite Ice Cube song of all time? Do you know what? I, uh, it's not from America's Most Wanted, and I know it's very cliche, but it's the one I still listen to regularly. Is it was a good day on Predator? Okay, all right. No, the Isley Brothers samples just beautiful, and you know when you got a nice summer's day out, that is the perfect record. That's barbecue yeah. music. Yeah, you know you're right. No, you're right, and I feel you on that because that was the that was the second Ice Cube album I bought. Was Predator, the yeah. was the predator? I used it because I had it. I had on. I bought the tape. Yep, talking about tapes. Yes, because <laughs> I had my I had my Walkman and like you know, my, and my car didn't have a CD player. And like the only time I could, and if I, when I finally got a CD player, it was a portable one. So I had the little the little tape adapter and put it in the tape deck so I could listen to my CDs. Yeah, man. Yeah, we taking it back. But um, I, know, I know those ones. Don't worry, I know those ones. <laughs> but but I remember buying the Predator and and I remember I used to play like in this basketball league. Um, at, after I graduated from high school, I was in college for a couple years, and I was playing with some you know this local basketball league, and we play every Wednesday night, and and there would be like three or four games before ours, and I would just sit in the stands and I pop the Predator tape in, and I would just listen to it to get hype before the game. And I mean. It's, Good record to get hyped to. Oh man. yeah, definitely. I mean, hearing songs like "Wicked," you know, yeah. and that was like the ultimate hype song. But my favorite Cube track of all time, and nothing for me will ever, ever, ever top this. Jacket for beats. Yeah, yeah. I'll let you have that one. That's. A, did you ever hear the? I thought st- Sticky Fingers. Does it, did Sticky Fingers do the remix of it? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. About ten years later. Mm-hmm. And but obviously no, it wasn't as good as the Ice Cube one. And you know, at the time, you're right. It was so relevant at the time because you know the beats he was jacking for were bangers. You know. Yeah, man. I mean, he he went everywhere. Started with like the D Nice, my name is D Nice cut, and yep. then like did the EPMD and like and and Public Enemy and did Humpty Hump. You know, the Humpty Dance. Dance. <laughs> and I mean, he was going everywhere with it. And like and like as as a kid hearing this for the first time i'm like how'd he do this how's this possible and my mind was blown i mean absolutely blown when i heard that and that's why to this day that song will never leave my ipod it's almost like the the birth of the uh, mixtape freestyle that record people spitting over other people's records yeah it was like the birthplace of it there yeah no i'd have to agree i yeah yeah I, i definitely agree with you on that for sure
you had written an article on its on your Tumblr uh, regarding yep. how Def Jam lost his soul. Maybe losing his soul was a little harsh, but I, I wanted <laughs> I wanted to hit where it hurt. <laughs> no, 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 and that's and that's fine. I mean, you know, you you're definitely trying to get your point across. The first paragraph you talked about so many labels. Yep. And it and it's to me it's kind of similar. And by that, I mean you talked about Loud Records, you talked about Raucous Records, you talked about Tommy Boy, No, yep. no Limit, Death Row, Rap-A-Lot. And from the 80s to about, I say, 2005, to me, hip-hop was like professional wrestling. And, I'm not, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but there was a long period of time professional wrestling was territorial. Yes, very much so. Very regional. Yes, just territorial and regional. So you have like the WWF at the time, because they were not the WWE, they had the Upper East Coast. Oh, wait a minute, Sean. Sorry, they'll always be the WWF to me. <laughs> I don't care what No Panda says. Yeah. They're the WWF to me. Okay, no, that's cool, because I'm, I'm the same <laughs> way. I, I, I don't like saying WWE. but And, I, and then honestly, I still say that was all a ploy. To be honest with you, I think they wanted to change their name to World Wrestling Entertainment because for them, they're like, we're a federation, and that doesn't make sense anymore because we pretty much run the game. We are the only federation. Yeah, yeah. if you're the only federation, you really don't need to call yourself a federation anymore. So in the True. So in order to make yourself mainstream, you call yourself World Wrestling Entertainment and and then you you loosely talk about you have a that the World Wildlife Foundation has a beef with you. <laughs> you, you, you know what Those I mean? Pandas, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> you can't beat the pandas, I'm telling you. <laughs> but, they can't procreate, but they can take on wrestlers any day of the week. Yes, they they do a killer uh, a killer cobra clutch if, if you're not <laughs> exactly. careful. But but hip hop was very territorial just like professional wrestling. And so you had areas representing the east, the south, the west, and like you know, all these different types of boroughs and neighborhoods, and they all had their own distinct sound. Okay, yes, and and like and, and that goes. And Def Jam was the other label too, because you know, that's where for me that's where it all started. And not only did you have Def Jam, but you also had Profile. Yes. You, wow, that's going back. Yeah. You, you also had Profile, which was under Arista, if uh, memory serves me right. And plus, you also had a uh, you know Uni or Universal. They also had hip hop stuff as well. And this was before, um, you know, or MCA Records. They had a little bit of hip hop. And this was before, um, you know, the um, Uptown Records started. And then you had yep. up, then you had Uptown, which was both hip hop and R and B, but it was hip, but it was R and B with a hip hop tinge. Yep. You you know, so you had all that you had all this diversity, okay? Diversity in sounds, it was diversity in culture, it was diversity in life, it was diversity in the message. You went Indeed. You, definitely. Oh, and we also had Jive. I'm sorry. We had Jive. Jive Records, Jive Records. Yeah. And you know, Arista were putting out a lot of lot of product as well, you know, as you said, they had profile under them, didn't they? Yeah. But um I, I think that um you raise a valid point there, and especially in a pre internet age. You, there was a lot of times, especially in the UK, you wouldn't hear a record. You didn't have YouTube to go, oh, let me try and hear what this guy sounds like before I go and buy his record. Mm -hmm. So having Ruckus Records or Loud Records or Rap-A-Lot Records on, on the back of that CD, you sort of had an idea of the sound that you were going to get because, as you say, they were very regional. They all had their own distinct sound. So, you know, you see that uh, Talib Kweli puts out an album on Ruckus and you've heard most Def's material before. You kind of know that you're going to get a certain kind of record. And if you listen to, like, 
the Wu-Tang on Loud Records and then you hear Big Punisher comes out, you know what you're going to get. It's going to be that grimy sort of rap. And, you know, pre-internet, it was it almost helped you out a little bit, you know? And, and the sad thing about it is, is that all those labels we just talked about, um, I think with the exception of possibly Rap-A-Lot and Def yep. Jam, are gone. I think Tommy Boy exists in a completely different form to what it used to be. Oh, Tommy Boy has nothing to do with hip-hop anymore. That's right. Nothing. They're not even called Tommy Boy anymore, are they? They're like Tommy Entertainment Corporation or something like that. Yeah, I mean, they honestly have nothing to do with hip-hop at all anymore. And Which is um, a shame, because the groups that come out of Tommy Boy were... Wow. Well, t- Tommy Boy ruined itself. To be, to, in my personal opinion, Tommy Boy ruined itself because I don't think it's like one, you know, De La Soul took off, House of Pain took off, and they had a couple other acts take off. And then I remember they said, okay, we're going to do this thing where they had like their uh, black label where it was like underground acts. They were supposed to like do that too. And I remember that, yeah. And, and it never took, and it never really took off outside of like, you know, like, like New York or, or whatever, but, um, and like, or like, you know, the bigger metro- metropolitan states, but, um, and then they just started like, you know, they, they wanted to do other, other styles of acts and stuff like that, which is cool. If you want to, you know, if you want to change your, you know, diverse, you know, diversify your brand, that's fine. But in doing that, they kind of forgot where they came from and then it all started to fall apart. And, and, and it's pretty much the same with, with Def Jam where, entirely. And on a larger scale as well. Oh, yeah, it's a much larger scale because, you know, Def Jam started off as a very small thing. I mean, you know, like you said, it started off, you know, in a college dorm. As small as it gets. Mm-hmm. Two guys just, you know, um, I think Rick Rubin already had an act on Def Jam that wasn't a hip-hop act. It was like he was in a punk group or something like that. And him and Russell Simmons were good pals and they basically were like, Let's do this together. Right. From, from that, from it, literally you talking to your pal in a college dorm room to becoming what it is, it's, it's definitely a feat. And there's there's no doubt about, I've, I've got infinite amount of respect for whatever caricature Russell Simmons paints himself to be nowadays. Mm-hmm. I've got infinite amounts of respect for Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin. Def Jam starting off as this label that, once again, it was diverse. You had LL Cool J, who dropped 13 albums on Def Jam. 13. Now, granted, I know people are going to say, yeah, man, LL's corny. And I, I, you know, sometimes with LL, I don't think he's corny. Sometimes he can get in a rut. I'll be the first to say it musically. Sometimes he can get into a rut, but if you look over his whole track record, it's kind of like watching Star Trek movies. The first one, the you know, the first one's all right. The second one's the bomb. The third yeah. one's pretty good. The fourth one's kind of whack. And then you know, and, and like, in I'm not saying like all of his albums were like that, but he would hit this road where he have a tight album, a really cool album. That's all right. That's all right. Mama said, "Knock you out." He's back on top. And, exactly. And, that's that's the one. And then, like, after Mama said, knock you out, he comes out with 13 shots to the dome, which to this day, I don't understand. 
Yeah, man. Yeah. But you know what? I will give credit where the guy's due. Even during his rocks, that he would still have a couple of tunes. Oh, you know, he would have you know? he would have a hit. He would always have a hit on an album, even if the album as a whole was not good. Because listen, if you drop an album and like still get four videos and the album isn't that great, but you can take pink cookies in a plastic bag getting crushed by buildings and get that airplay, you are a fucking genius. <laughs> no, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And another thing I'll give a lot of respect to LL for, you know, the guy's been in the game for a long time and I think the, uh, part of the reason to that is he's he's got a great ability to change and adapt with the times yeah. and the sounds that are available to him at that time, you know. Oh, yeah. During the Mr. Smith era, he was doing his Bad Boy Records impression as good as anyone. And he had hits out of that, lounging and doing it with tunes. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. Got, air, they got airplay in the UK, which was no mean feat in the mid to late night. Mr. Smith was the album that brought me back to Cool J. Mm, I think it's a nice album, you know. And and then from there, see, but and here's the whole thing. Because we're about to go on an LL Cool J uh, tangent. Um, <laughs> see, but that was the whole thing with LL. Yeah, he would always adapt with the times, but sometimes sometimes he would take it too far. Yes. Be- because, like, with Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith was a great record. And then he followed it up with Phenomenon, which was supposed to be a tie-in with his book, I Make My Own Rules. And the problem... Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yes, yes. That was, that was a tie-in with his book, I Make My Own Rules, because around that period of time, I remember reading an article in Vibe where it was like, and where, where basically Vibe was saying, LL has always wanted to be Will Smith. Yes. And I mean, but nowadays, you know, nowadays, you know, LL, is, you know, does a lot of acting now. He still cuts a record every now and then. So he's got that Will Smith cred now, if you know what I mean. But back then, this article was stating that he wanted to be, you know, Will Smith as far as popularity on, you know, both sides, both sides of the spectrum. And he and like Phenomenon was supposed to be that record. And because it was a, a super it was it was I'm not saying it was a super pop record. But it had a lot of mainstream style songs. And once again, it it also worked as a piece with his book, I Make My Own Rules. Because Phenomenon was essentially, in a sense, a history of LL's life. Yes. And cor- sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he, you you doing the, uh, the parallel with Will Smith, didn't he round about the Phenomenon era have a show, a sitcom that was, I think it was show run by Quincy Jones's son. Yes. Like similar to the Fresh Prince, but I forgot the name of it. In in the house. It was called In the House. Yes, that's right. And it originally, it started on NBC and he was like right after the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and then it was on like NBC, I think for two seasons and then it moved to, uh, I think either the WB or UPN or something like that. Okay. Neither of those channels exist anymore. Now it's just the CW. And that was on for a few more years. And like Phenomenon, which I still played a lot because I kept because there were some tracks on there. Once again, he would have an album which wasn't complete, but there was always one or two songs on there. I'm like, damn it, this is tight. I got to keep Couple this in my Couple of bangers, phone. yeah. And, Definitely. And but then after um, Phenomenon, I think he came out with was it Goat Greatest of All Time? Yes. And that album, once again, to me, wasn't that good, but it sold right out the gate. I mean, right out the gate, it sold. I didn't care much for it. I didn't think there were a lot of quality songs on it. Do you remember that? That was during the um, when Def Jam had, had, had rebirthed as Def Jam 2000. Yeah. It wasn't too long after In My Lifetime's Part 2 come out, yeah. and DMX was like the, the hottest artist on the planet. And mm-hmm. I think... And no disrespect to LL because, as you said, he, you know, not many people can release an album called The Goat and it not be very good, and you still respect him. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think he 
he rode a, a little bit on the coattails of of Def Jam then, whereas Def Jam have been riding on LL's co- coattails for so many years. Mm-hmm. I think he capitalised on how popular they were at the moment. Yeah. Oh no. I think a, a lot of guys were buying Def Jam records just because they had Def Jam on the back of the CD. You know. Right. Oh no, no, I agree with you on that, and you're right. And it was during that era when that album came out. You had DMX, Jay Z, Ja Rule. They had a lot of heavy hitters. And, and then as well, all the, all the guys that came with the DMXs, the Jar Rules, and the Jay Zs, all the the Memphis Bleaks and the the Rough Riders camp, and all these guys that were all you know, even the hate to use a comic book analogy, but even the C list guys were going gold and platinum. You know, they yeah, were setting records. Yeah, I mean, it was to a point later on, like like right around 2000 or uh, maybe even 2001, where when all these like labels were disappearing like a lot of the smaller labels were disappearing like Def Jam was just signing acts left and right I mean I remember I mean because it's almost the equivalent of wrestling where you know WWF was like signing all these wrestlers from ECW WCW It it was along the lines of the same thing turn my head and i see a wc def jam album called ghetto heisman yeah which i thought would never happen i see keith murray signing it you know signing a deal with def jam he gets an album on def jam and i see that um odb signs on to def jam as dirt mcgirt and, yep. and, and and i'm like where are they getting all this money from but they had so many acts that were selling what do you do? You constantly bring in more talent, and you know it's like, okay, Dub C, we expect at least 250,000 to 500,000 copies sold. So here's his budget. We don't even have to advertise this album. Go. Because we know LA will buy it at the very least. Yes. You know, the West Coast will lap it up. Oh, yeah. And, and not to mention, you know, Red Man, Method Man, and then the Method Man Red Man albums. The, the team which when they went in like, they went stratospheric after that because they had didn't they have the high, how high movie and they were in movies and stuff as well oh yeah i remember over here a lot of um a lot of people had love for red man method man at that time oh yeah definitely i mean black- and for me the rock wilder whenever i hear that tune uh, I've got to run to the dance floor, you know. <laughs> I mean, as soon as you hear that noise, that sort of weird spacey beat, mm-hmm. and you know what's going to happen, you know it's all going to go off. Yeah, man. Yeah, because like that was the beat that put uh, the producer Rock Rockwilder on the map. Because yeah. then after that, you heard uh, a, a Rock a Rockwilder beat on De La Soul's um, Bionics album, the the first yes. one, the Ooh 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 song. That was a Rockwilder beat. So, oh, wow, really? Yeah. If, yeah if That's it, tune as well, man. Oh, oh, yeah, definitely. Like, Def Jam had, like, all this talent, all this diversity in music. Even during even during the, the Blunts, Booze, and Broads era, they still had that diversity. Now, eventually, Public Enemy left Def Jam, and they did their own thing after, um, after some beef where, because Def Jam was changing as a label, and they didn't want to really affiliate themselves with Public Enemy anymore. And um, you know, as well, do you mind if I just jump in here? Um, I think that... Um, Seagram and Seagram, who are ultimately universal, buying Def Jam changed Def Jam so much. Yeah. They, 
you know, um, and uh, you're very right. They didn't really want to be seen with a group that was seen as edgy, like Public Enemy. Mm-hmm. You know, they were ultimately, and you know, I think this is a big problem that a lot of people have, including myself, with the music industry, and a lot of things that um, I, uh, particularly myself, grasp understanding is a music industry, and and you know, I'm sure you you understand this with comics is. No matter how much entertainment it is, it is a business. Yeah. And there are people that you need to appease, people who have put money into your business, stockholders and, you know, directors that want to see results. And having someone like Public Enemy at that time, especially with the whole whether or not Professor Griff said the anti-Semitic comments or not, mm-hmm. as soon as it was accused that he did say them, that was it. It didn't matter whether he said them or not. That accusation, you know, when you fling mud at people, it sticks. Yeah. And, you know, Universal couldn't be any part of that. Whether that's right or wrong, mm-hmm. I don't know. But unfortunately, it's the nature of the beast. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, 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 and it's sad. It, it, it's sad to me because when that happened, when, when Public Enemy was no longer with Def Jam, to me, that was like, well, yeah, Def Jam was still booming and they still had acts I listened to. But a piece of their original sound and diverse sound was gone. And the one constant in any form of business or media is change. Yeah. But I always thought, I always thought that if there was one thing that was going to go hand in hand, it was that Public Enemy would always be with Def Jam. But, when, but like you said, when they got bought and acquired by Universal, you're introducing them to even bigger business. And before that, they were with Sony. Def Jam was, well, yeah. actually, Def Jam was with Polygram, and then before that, they were with Sony. And when they were with Sony slash Columbia, Columbia never really knew what they had. You know, but they knew that, they knew that Def Jam sold records. That, that's all they knew, and that's all they really cared about, so the controversy didn't really matter. Because even right now, Columbia as a whole still struggles to understand how to sell more than one act at a time. Oh, entirely. I totally agree with that. You remember uh, Rough, another label, Rough House Records. Yeah, Rough House. You know, that was a Jermaine Dupri's label. And, um, no, I'm saying that wasn't Jermaine Dupri's label. No, that was um, Jermaine Dupri at So So Deaf. Another but label. You're right, because So So Deaf were on Columbia as yeah. well. Yeah, was, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was, it was So So Deaf. There was Rough House Records and stuff like that. But, so you see, two more labels you don't really hear about anymore. I remember. Where's Jermaine Dupri gone? Jermaine Dupri, like, for a while, I think he was running. I think he's. Is he running Arista? Um, he might be. Because remember, he signed with Virgin Records many years ago and like helped produce Janet's uh, 20-year-old album. Yes. And and because that album tanked out the gate, they fired Dupree and uh, oh, and they kicked man. and they kicked Janet off the label, which was like unfucking heard of. Because like yeah. she had nothing but hits for ages and nothing but like multi-platinum albums, and then she dropped 20 years old and it didn't hit, and they're like, You're both gone. Whether or not it was a flop, you're yeah. gonna drop Janet Jackson off your label. Mm-hmm. Janet Jackson, are yeah. you mad? That is crazy talk. Yeah, mad crazy. And, and but you know, to me, Jermaine Dupree's still the guy who made Money Ain't a Thing. So oh, don't, Dave, man, don't even get me started on that track because that that's the cut too. If you can be in a music video wearing yellow canary suits <laughs> with background dancers and and flaunt hard. And pull and pull that off. I, I can't say anything. I, I can't. I can't you say can't. anything. You are right. Because I'm. I'm tell you something. Those suits were so canary yellow bright that when they were filming the video, the suits were so bright that you could see like fibers like flowing through the air. Okay. <laughs> Go back and watch that video. Bouncing off the light. Yeah. Go back and watch that video because 
first off, the beat on that was just tight as hell. And oh man! And the thing is, I had you know, I, see, the first Jay Z album I bought was in my lifetime, Volume One, because at that time he had just signed with Def Jam. Same here. And I knew about Reasonable Doubt, but I'd never listened to it. Yeah, at that time. So I get it. I'm like, well, this is all right. This is kind of cool. It's got you know some crossover appeal. He got he had the track with Foxy Brown and Babyface singing the hook, Sunshine. Sunshine. And she's a chick. Yeah, and that's the one that caught my eye. I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool. And he did the song with Black Street, where you know they do that little "You Belong to the City" sample. And I'm like, okay, this is more of like a mainstream record. So I understand why the critics didn't like it compared to Reasonable Doubt. But I didn't listen to Reasonable Doubt until I got to Volume Three of Jay Z. Life and Times. Yeah. Sean, uh, okay, the one with Big Pimpin' on it. Yeah, yeah. So yep. I listened to that album, and then, like, this is when, like, BMG existed. I went and got, like, a t- in, Columbia, in Columbia Music, I went and got a ton of albums from them, and I got Reasonable Doubt. And I sat and I listened to Reasonable Doubt for, like, four straight days. And that album's still, oh, man. There's so many tunes on that album. 22 twos. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. You, you, and, uh, Brooklyn's finest and oh, the, the and evils. Yeah, you, oh. you can't knock the hustle. Yeah, I'm a, like, even you know, um, ain't no player. What a tune. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So you had all of that, but like it's like I said, just Def Jam just kept coming and coming and stuff with stuff. And not only that, they also had like great soundtrack music. And see, that was a whole other thing too. The as far as hip hop goes in the '90s to the early 2000s. Those you know, hip hop music and all these labels generated some of the best soundtrack, soundtrack yeah. purchasing music in the history of music. Okay, you can go to any hip hop head or even R and B head, and I guarantee you they got a copy of the Nutty Professor soundtrack in <laughs> their house. I'm talking about the Eddie Murphy one, y'all. I'm talking about yeah, Eddie Murphy. I know, they got I know. it, and they know the first five tracks by heart. <laughs> hey, didn't they? Uh, no, it wasn't Romeo Must Die that they did. They did the Belly soundtrack as well. One of the the biggest music uh, video uh, film flops in history. Yeah. Um, what else did they? Because uh, uh, they also did one of the Fast and Furious soundtracks, which is really good. The one that Ludacris kind of was the showrunner on. Yeah, and I, th- I think that was just technically like under a Universal label, probably. But you're right. Oh, okay. You're you're right. You remember, but you are right though. But that was the whole thing. Soundtrack music for hip hop. It's pretty much dead. Or soundtracks are pretty much dead unless it's fucking Twilight. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. But it, there was a good period of time for 15 years. If you had a film that had, had a primarily black cast, you had a bomb-ass soundtrack. Yep. What was the Martin Lawrence film where he's trying to rob the diamond that had the Jay-Z? Blue Streak. Song? Yeah. That, that, was that a Def Jam one? I know no. that had uh, Jay-Z, though, had the, um, um, the main single, didn't he? Yeah, he had the main single, and so did Tyrese. Tyrese had a song called Criminal Mind with uh, yep. Heavy D on it. And I don't think that was a Def Jam album. But you are right. Once again, another another one, a male black lead, have the hip-hop soundtrack with it. Mm-hmm. And they, but they'd sell by the bucket load. They were selling they were selling soundtrack albums that were going gold and platinum, which mm-hmm. is that would never happen in a million years nowadays. And, oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, come on, man. The How to Be a Player soundtrack, like yeah. went, went, I think, like went gold. And wow. <laughs> and, and there's only like two songs on that album, and one of them you can just get on the EPMD reunion album. Yeah. Yeah. 
and in which I find bizarre that in this age of the internet and and technology that we're having to look more than ever for music as opposed to 20 years ago where the only thing we had was the radio and a video show if you had MTV or if you had BET that's how you normally would like find an act and even then let's be real it's not like they put those videos on loop it's not like you heard it's not like you saw that video every four hours it, you oh didn't. for real you did over in this country we had two M, on mtv you couldn't listen to rap music on mtv unless it was the once a week yo mtv raps mm-hmm. or they did a sort of r&b show mtv that, jams yeah that maybe once in a while had like a biggie song if it was one more chance or something like that you know you weren't listening to hip-hop any other way on the on mtv over in this country anyway yeah and now you you can't escape it but it's not the same hip-hop that we you know and i don't i really didn't especially with my article as well i really didn't want this to be a fight against a man or even a in my day things were better yeah. sort of thing oh, yeah, but definitely, definitely. that you know it, we've got um we've got a provider called Sky in this country that have it's a, I suppose it's a, similar to what you guys have with a TiVo where you've got X amount of channels and you've got X amount of music channels and stuff. We've got about 15, 16 music channels and you can go through the music channels and guaranteed there'll be four or five songs spread over those 16 music channels. And it will be Rihanna, Lady Gaga possibly Beyonce now just as an aside I'm not hating on any of those girls because you know to varying degrees of quality of their music they know how to make their money Mm. but you know there's only there's no diversity whatsoever you know you're listening to the same songs every day and I know you know that fair enough people are entitled to what sounds go in their ears if they like it they're entitled to enjoy it and far be it from me to ever criticize anyone but when the when the options available to people are so minimal, they've got no choice but to listen to those sort of things. That's what pains me. There's no diversity within, within especially music videos, but on the radio as well, going back to what we were saying before, unless it's talk or sports radio, it's just the same 20 records getting played again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And it's sad. And it comes, it comes down to me for, and once again, I don't want to be bashing the man because, you know, the man also gives me some of the best entertainment I enjoy. But Universal own such a large chunk of the music industry sure do. that they they dictate what the mainstream gets to listen to. And I don't necessarily think that's right. But, you know, that's just me, man. It's just the, That's just the way these multimedia corporations work. If you look under their tree and see everything they own, you, you know, you'll be amazed. It's, it's, oh, it's shocking. It's, it's like with like Warner Brothers is another example. Warner Brothers owns Interscope. I know, and <laughs> that, that that's, will get me started onto something else with the whole, you know, why, why are certain acts get signed to a modern death jam when they, it, it just defeats the object of it for me. Like, yeah. you know, I don't want to bash Justin Bieber. Well, I do want to bash Justin Bieber, but you know, I don't I, like the guy knows how to make money and the guy knows how to make records. He's got a great management team behind him. To me, Justin Bieber fans don't care whether he's on Def Jam or not. Right. Right. He's right. he's owned ultimately by Universal Records. Right. Right. Def Jam fans having Justin Bieber on their label hurts them 
to degrees. Well, I don't know about you, but it just taints the image of the label for me. Well, it doesn't make sense. Well, you got to understand, man. Like, th- like the Def Jam we grew up with and the Def Jam that's out there now are two different Def Jams. Not only that. And, and not only that, but you also have to understand that the reason why, another reason he got put on Def Jam is for the simple fact that when you think Def Jam, you think a black label, okay? And the thing is, is that not, but the thing is, is that they want to break that stereotype of this is a black label, but they also want to show white folks that, hey, yo, man, we got this cool, this cool kid on this black label. You need, really need to get down with this kid. And it works both ways. That's part of the reason why he's on Def Jam, because also he also embraces hip hop and R&B music. So, yeah, he's got pop cuts. But come on, man. Dude's been on mixtapes and and like doing remixes with like Raekwon, the chef and Kanye. I know. I know. So, I mean, regardless of whether you like it or not, there's a reason why he's on Def Jam. Yeah, he was making all this money independently. And then, you know, Usher gets him and he still has his he has his albums and then they re-release his albums through Def Jam and he makes even more money through that. So I understand why they did it. I understand why they did. But you're right, though. It's it's a complete contrast to the era of when Eric Sermon was running solo records on Def Jam. Exactly. It's just like a complete complete opposite turn and I've, I've got to be honest Sean I'm not I'm not sure if I like necessarily agree with the whole like if they wanted if they wanted Def Jam to not be seen as a predominantly black label and I know he intermingles with you know like the Raekwons and the Kanye's of this world he's still a pop singer they, there's so many talented white MCs out there why didn't they sign a couple of those guys be- like not, I'm not talking about the race or anything, yeah. but the fact that they kind of they spread themselves out over genres. And I know Def Jam had done that before with Def Soul and having, you know, um, who's um, this is how we do it, guy Montel, Montel Jordan. Jordan. Yeah, yeah, you know, they had him for a time and stuff, but there was still a certain hip hop feel to their music, you know. Right. It's because it's not a hip hop label anymore. It's just no, it's just a I label. Know. It's just a label now. That's the whole thing. And like when that happened, pretty much nowadays, there are still tons of independent acts out there that have like their own labels and whatnot. But that whole territory thing is pretty much over. Okay. Yeah. I mean, rap a lot still exists. <clears throat> I mean, but see, people forget there used to be a Def Jam South. Yeah. Scarface. Yeah, you know, Ludacris was on Def Jam South. Yeah. Uh, and um and Scarface was on Def Jam South for a while. People forget they used to be a bad boy South. Yeah. Oh wow. And that did nothing really, did it? Yeah, it, it blew up for a minute and then went away. Yeah. And Do you know what? I think that's partly because Def Jam now, I, I had a little look after writing the article to look at their current roster. Mm-hmm. They have, certain, there's a um, a guy who used to be known as Titty Boy from, uh, I sound so incredibly English when I say that. <laughs> um, a guy called Titty Boy who was on um, Ludacris's label, Disturbing the Peace, ultimately owned by Def Jam. He's changed his name to Two Chains and he's getting a lot of heat on the underground at the moment. Right. He signed to Def Jam. But whereas 10 years ago, he would have been a Def Jam South artist. Right. Now he's just, as you say, Def Jam's just a label. He's just enveloped in with the rest of the rest of the label, you know? And I mean, that's just how it works now. And something else in the article that really hit me, Ghostface Killer, who has been around, who is a hip hop legend legend one of the best lyricists of all time can't get a decent production budget or advertising budget with def jam and the whole thing was was that with 
Epic, when he was on Epic, granted, once again, it's Sony. Sony never understood, never, never, outside of Beyonce, Celine Dion, and sometimes Michael Jackson, they seldom understood what they had. No, you're very right. Because they can only promote one artist at a time. And I don't know why they struggle with that, but they can only promote one artist at a time, no matter what the label is under their um, under their banner. But they had Ghostface, and Ghostface albums did well, but he wanted better money and more exposure. So he signs this Def Jam deal. He's had a lot of records through Def Jam. And I'll be the first to tell you, in my lifetime, I've hardly seen any of them promoted. No, none of them. None of them. Not not a solitary one, and he's had, he has made. Ghostface Killer is a great example, actually, because he's actually as the sort of character that's gone. Okay, you know what? If I if you want me to play that way, I'll play by your rules, and I'll make an R and B sounding hip hop album with the Ghost Wizard of Poetry. They didn't market that either, right? So he went, okay, I'll do a hard fucked out album. <laughs> so he done Apollo Kids, didn't market that either. Mm-hmm. They just don't know what to do with the guy. He had songs with Missy Elliott that um. Uh, is it Tush or Hush or something on um, the Pretty Tony album how could you have a song with Missy Elliott when Missy Elliott was at like the zenith of her creativity Mm. and Def Jam not market it yeah man it just doesn't make sense to me no It, it doesn't make sense to me either and sometimes I just wonder do they sit on an artist just to make sure nobody else can get them but, but then, but then Possibly. again, but then again, it's a business. So why would you do that? But at the same time, then your competition isn't making any money. But there isn't like there isn't. It's not like there's competition anymore because there really aren't that many labels. No, exactly. There isn't. And I can tell you something for nothing. We, um, uh, myself and a few of my friends went to see Wu Tang Clan um, about eighteen months ago, and they did like four or five dates at quite a big venue, and they sold out in hours. So the fan base is still there. And you go to these concerts and the fan base, like particularly for the Wu-Tang, and I think nowadays I feel that Ghostface Killer is probably the mouthpiece of the Wu-Tang more than any other. Might not have been that way 10, 15 years ago, but I feel that he's definitely the most creative one in terms of putting his product out. You know, Method Man doesn't make too many records anymore. Raekwon does when he feels like it. Same as RZA. Anyway, that's beside the point. Um, You know, I'll go to this concert, and there was people of all ages and races bumping Wu-Tang. Yep. So surely, like, and I'm talking, there's, there's people like guys who had brought their 15-year-old sons along who, you know, didn't even, weren't even around when Enter the Wu-Tang come out. Like, how does that make sense that he's not, being marketed it, it it just baffles me and he's so sad you know and i think maybe he's the, the thing that ghostface killer's got which is a big issue is he is and i i, I really don't want this to sound patronizing but i think you know kanye west said it best when um he said that he found that he wasn't selling enough records because he felt that his his lyrics and his beats were too intricate and too esoteric and too hard for the mainstream to listen to. So then he come out with graduation and he simplified his rhyme style and he went stratospheric. Mm-hmm. You know, I think to cater to the mainstream audience, you do have to simplify your product a little bit. And I think that Ghostface Killer potentially would go over a lot of people's heads and most importantly the well obviously the people's heads who are giving out the money at Def Jam because I, I think he's not making anything else for Def Jam now I think he's working out his contract and not too dissimilar to wrestling again and then he's off yeah yeah and like I saw him on Twitter a few days ago and like a, like a lot of hip-hop acts what they're doing is they're trying to find new production talent 
and yeah. they're like, hey, send me your beats. We'll work some, you know, and like he'll listen to like, they'll listen to all these beats and then they'll take X amount of these beats here and put the rest away and say, these are the beats I like. Let's talk. And, right. and I mean, and that's just like another way. It's a new way to make music. Social media gives us a new way to make music now. And a lot of people are like, kind of like cracking on Ghostface now. You're washed up and all this stuff. I'm like, no, dude, this is a new way to make music, period. It's, oh, totally. You know, ask, you know, like putting out a request for beats isn't a sign of I've lost my touch. It's just that you want to change the game. You want to do something different. And if like a label isn't cooperating with you, and you want to do something different reach out to the people because there's always that one kid or one lady or or one guy that has been putting beats together that were probably slamming that you have never heard of in your entire life you give that person that break you never know what could happen well there's your new kanye west's or there's your new no no ideas you know without yeah well without a, a certain amount of faith that rockefeller records put behind kanye west without yeah. that he wouldn't ex- exist as the person we know today and right. um, you know i i do entirely agree with you and i i, I don't want to make this like you know the uh, uh, chicken little the sky is falling oh, no. because i really i think that there is another side to this of you know uh, like you just said there's a positive angle of ghostface killers reaching out to new production people through twitter and you know i've seen a lot of artists recently who uh, like raekwon raekwon just recently released a mixtape off his own back which I've, i respect immensely because through the internet and stuff he's putting his product directly out to the people without even thinking about major label support and stuff like that marketing it marketing it himself which you know a lot of a lot of success stories i think recently in the hip-hop scene the last couple of years have um have done that like you look at odd future and more recently guys like danny brown and stuff they've made their they've made their own fortune by putting stuff out themselves right and then the labels have to come to them and, you know and even if the labels come to them and they break try to broker a deal these guys can say well i make more money than that exactly so I, you know yeah so you got sorry oh no no so like the only reason you take the labels for the distribution you don't take it for anything else but even but even then even then today's era where more stores are not selling cds why do you need a label well exactly when you can you know there's so many different avenues like you can sound you've got stuff like soundcloud and Bandcamp, where artists can put their own music out and you can buy it like for a fee off the internet putting money directly into the artist's uh, pocket and you know um it, it unfortunately as with any entertainment industry the big wigs are slow to catch up with the way the fan base are moving yes and i think that may well damage you know it's it's damaged comics it's it's damaged the music industry irreparably i think but as i said you know there are more positive avenues to come out of this I, 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 it's really nice to see artists putting out their own stuff and finding new artists who are just willing to put out their own stuff and put new stuff out there and you know the internet i think as a broken certain boundaries as well where you know we were talking earlier about there is no regional scene anymore Mm. the positive slant to that is you've got guys like bun b recording tracks with new york guys and you've got west coast guys recording tracks with east coast guys which would never have happened before
once again, like your mileage may vary on, on what you think about Odd Future and whether or not them as a group are a fad or they're here to stay. But they re they released a video last week and sure, no word of a lie, four days it's been on the internet, maybe five days now. It's got over five million views. That is insane. It's just bananas. How how are you getting that sort of view? Like you know, with with, with the advent of no promotion, no, no promotion. marketing, yeah. you're just doing it yourself. Yeah. Word of mouth. And, and and MTV don't embrace them either. No, well, you, just go and see the video when you get a chance, and you understand MTV won't be embracing the video anytime <laughs> soon. Oh dear, they they you know um, as I said, your mileage may vary on them. I, I I quite like them maybe because they are so shocking, and I think that there's been a certain amount of that in hip hop throughout throughout time you know yeah. for every run DMC there was a cool Keith and the ultra magnetic MCs right. and I'm happy with both sides of the equation you know I, I look at it like this because I'm a little bit older now um, and that I've seen it before maybe it's maybe it's like it's less appealing to me even yes. though even though lyrically it could be strong it's like when we talked about Danny Brown and yeah. I'll, I'll talk about this for, for a quick minute but when we talked about Danny Brown I said to me Danny Brown is a combination of ODB Cool G rap and comedian Patrice 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 O'Neill. It's a combination of the three, and I can respect that style, but because of my age and where I'm at right now, I've heard that before. Yeah, we've had we had old dirty bastard fifteen years ago. Yeah, no, I fully agree with that. You know, I've heard it before, and that's not a knock on Danny Brown. It's not. It's no way, shape, or form because every generation has you know, its own comparable artist that compares to A, B, or C. It happens. And it, and, it, yep. it's, and it's not a bad thing at all. It's it's not. I mean, because sometimes you could tell the difference between somebody that's just a straight copycat and then somebody that has influences. There's a difference between the two, okay? Yep. And so, but when I hear Danny Brown, I hear those three things. And also, as far as, like, some of the subject matter, I've been down that road so many, you know, I've been down that road hearing it so many times in my life. It's like, okay, I, I get you. And I, I, I respect yeah. you. I respect you and whatnot, but I've heard that a lot. So, I heard Akinelli 15 years ago. I know. I've heard all that sort of stuff. I know exactly what you mean. Luke and the two live crew were 22 years ago. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, but see, but there's a generation. But see, there's a generation that's never heard that stuff before. So when they hear a Danny Brown, they're like, oh, this is great. But when I hear Danny Brown, it's like, okay, what else you yeah. got? You, you, I agree with that. You, you, you know what I mean? It's That's why when. For like for say for instance from R and B perspective, when a new solo artist comes out, I'm like, listen, you got to do better. I've got I've got thirty plus years of music history in my head that I can just lay out in front of you and play that takes your whole album and buries it for, for centuries. Oh, totally. But you know, that again it goes back to what you were just saying about each generation needs their their own idols to look up to you know right it's, it's good to go back because look don't get me wrong man I, I grew up listening to my dad playing Curtis Mayfield and Marvin Gaye records I know I know my history and I love my history but you know for me my my idols were the you know the day last souls because that's what it was when I was growing up right. and I think you know I, what, and you know once again whatever people's opinion of those odd future guys and the danny browns and the mf dooms and you know the underground guys that the the young hipster crowd are listening to you, you can't take away from them that they are hungry and it's something that attracts people and i think that's something that's missing a lot from the the u.s mainstream at the moment you know um to to use a wrestling analogy again you know sometimes 
and it, I think with hip hop especially, um, more so than any other genre of music, sometimes it's better for Hulk Hogan to retire than to continue wrestling for 40 years. I agree. You know, I think Jay-Z, for me, has been phoning it in for five years. If he finished on the Black Album, people would remember him as... Uh, and people will still remember him as one of the greatest ever. You know, I would never take that away from him. But the last couple of albums have been up and down, you know, and he's not the same... Like, even when he releases a new quality record... Just go back and listen to Reasonable Doubt or even The Blueprint. And that's where you, that's where his real gold is. And he doesn't need to do it anymore. No? Look, far be it from me to tell anyone to stop doing what they're doing. But I think that especially with hip hop, you need to be hungry for it. Right. You need to have a certain energy and a certain. And if you haven't got that. I'm I'm not playing no more. I'll just listen to your old stuff. It doesn't mean I won't listen to you no more. Right. But I'll listen to your old stuff. I, I will say though, I I heard the hunger in his voice during the American Gangster record. I heard yes. I heard it during the Blueprint Three album. I don't care what anybody says. Blueprint Three album is nice. I I mean I know there are people going to be people that disagree with me on that, but that album is is nice and as far as beats on it man oh yeah say for instance with like watch the throne to me watch the throne is kind of like a it's a concept record it's not a standard mainstream hip-hop record to me that's a concept record because to me what kanye and jay-z did on that album they took it back to like 1996 that's yeah. that's what it is because like if you try to if you try to conceive and listen to that album as a current hip-hop record it may not fly with you, but go back and listen to hip hop from like 94 through 99. That is that album. Yeah. Straight oh, up. They're, they're shiny suits away from making a bad boy record. Ex man. Ex exactly. <laughs> so close. So, so close. And talking about things like, and that's, look, I respect it, but that's the thing that didn't jive with me about watch the throne was mm -hmm. they were talking about designer labels that I hadn't even heard of, let alone could never afford. Well, so. <laughs> well, plus we're, plus we're in an era right now, as far as the economy goes, it's not the greatest right now. So, yes, exactly. you, you know, you're talking about being all flashy when like a lot of folks don't have money. But people forget there's a period of time where that's all a ton of rappers talked about was getting paid. Oh, totally. Totally. You're right. Look, even the, the Puffy even got the locks to dress up like that and talk about money. You know, we're, that would never happen nowadays. We're, we're not going to talk about that. I, no, okay, that that okay. that does not exist. Although I can't lie, even though the tr even though the lyrics on the song and the hook was weak, the if you think I'm jiggy, just the beat, the production is flawless on that beat. Yep. The lyrics didn't sell me because I remember when that song came out, and I'm like, why are these dudes singing this hook? <laughs> they took a Rod Stewart hook and flipped it up. Uh, uh, no, no. But if you just listen to the beat without the lyrics, I'm like, oh my god, this beat is amazing. Yeah. But that was a majority of the Locks tracks, even Money, Power, Respect, which is that you know, that grimy hip hop record yep. where like even Lil Kim is on it. That's probably some of her best lyrics, period. As a oh, as, as a lyricist, but. DMX comes on at the end and just steals it from everybody. It's that's just a grimy, grimy, grimy record. And I remember when rappers used to say "grimy" in the record, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Noriega made a tune out of it. Oh, Neptune produced by the Neptunes. Yes, yes, early Neptunes production there. Thing like that whole Bad Boy Locks album, the production quality is fantastic. It's just for me, lyric wise, it didn't work when they left um, Bad Boy started doing their own thing it kind of you know changed up 
production changed up. You got you started to get the Swiss Beats era. So, you know, the lyrics are more suitable for me. But I mean, they're still they were always still hit and miss with me. Always, they were, the locks were always hit and miss, and that's no disrespect to them because they are talented. But they were always hit and miss for me. But um, they 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 for me they are free artists that are so close, but the glass ceiling is just stopping them becoming what they deserve to be. Yeah. There's they've never had none of them. Even Jadakiss has never really had that record that people can go, you know. This is why they are fantastic, and this is why I like them. But they've had some hot hits, you know. There's no two ways about that. I'm I'll follow Styles P till the ends of the earth because I just love his his music. But you are entirely right; they are very hit and miss. We got to wrap this up now is there anything that you want to like uh you know pimp or circulate out to the people uh to let them know about before we close up oh uh, yeah um please feel free to follow me on twitter i am uh, at taylor pivers that's t-a-y-l-o-r-p-i-t-h-e-r-s or you can or and you can follow my tumblr which i update on a sporadic basis and maybe you'll hear me speak about hip-hop but more than likely about comics, and that is elguapobestia.tumblr.com. That's E-L-G-U-A-P-O-B-E-S-T-I-A. And that's it, really. No, I've got nothing else to pimp. I've merely myself to pimp out. <laughs> oh, cool, cool, man, cool. <laughs> Taylor, thanks for being on the show, man, and, uh, and, and talking, talking some hip-hop with me. I appreciate it. Sean, thanks again for having me on. And you know, this is—it's been a very enlightening conversation talking about rap music. And any any time again, please feel free to give me a shout. I'm always happy to talk to you, man. Oh yeah, you know I will, man. Okay, thank you very much, bro. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the HHWLOD Podcast Network and is available at hhwlod.com and is also available via iTunes. And you can still go to pkdmedia.com to get our podcast, check out our forum, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, Agents of Cult, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store for free. If you're on iTunes or our forum board, feel free to leave us a comment, or you can email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard.